Thank you, David. Thank you, team. Well, good morning. As, uh, as most of you know, and for those who don't know me, my name's Andy. I'm on the leadership team here, and it's my privilege to bring us God's Word this morning. I think um, Kay's already preached a sort of <laughs> a potted version of it, but I will expand. Um, as, as you will know, we're in a sermon series titled, Are We There Yet? from the book of Joshua. And maybe the answer to that question for the Israelites might have been yes. Yes, they had reached the promised land. But I wonder if in their walk with God, there was still some way to go, as there is with me. I wonder how many times have we seen a series of events play out. We think everything's going according to plan, that God is with us even. But then we reach an obstacle, a bump in the road. Something goes disastrously wrong. Maybe we fail at something, or circumstances seem to conspire against us. I'm going to pick up this story in Joshua right from where Chris left off in chapter 6 last week, from the Battle of Jericho, where the walls come tumbling down. And chapter 7 is a bump in the road of God's journey to conquer the ungodly people who are living in the promised land. It was all going so well, wasn't it? The Lord's hand was with them. They'd taken Jericho without a single Israelite casualty. And then they turned towards the next stronghold. And um, when I was writing this, I, I don't have a clue how to pronounce its name. So um, I, I turned to my audio Bible, and David Suchet, the narrator, pronounces it Ayi. So I thought that's good enough for me. They go up to Ayi, the Israelites, with its king and its defenses, and something goes wrong. Suddenly, Joshua and his army hit an obstacle. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, we're looking at Joshua chapter 7, initially from 1 to 5. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and don't weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They, ch they chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. It should have been easy for Joshua's men, but they didn't realize the Lord was not with them. They were soundly defeated. 36 of them were killed. Maybe not a large number in the grand scheme of battles, but they didn't need to die. It left them demoralized. It's curious to see. I, I don't know if you noticed the same thing. There was no spiritual preparation recorded that Joshua had made for the battle against Ai as he had against Jericho. And I wonder, how many times might we, might I, decide on a particular course of action and fail to, or forget to, pray about it. We decide God must be in it. We're doing his will, aren't we? 
or after we've decided, we might retrospectively ask him to bless it. I know I've done that in the past many times. If Joshua had sought the Lord before this ill-fated campaign, I wonder maybe he might have discovered Achan's sin before it was too late. What was Achan's sin? Well, we know that he stole and he lied. We told he acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Now that sounds so cryptic, doesn't it? Well, do you read the footnotes in your Bible? I always do. They can be so enlightening, as indeed here. The footnote says, the Hebrew term for devoted refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by totally destroying them. And that is a strange concept. I'll I'll come back to that later on. We've seen that not all the plunder from the Battle of Jericho was destroyed as the Lord had commanded. Achan kept for himself some of its treasures, but he didn't realize the catastrophic effect that would have on Israel's relationship with the Lord. As Kay so perfectly illustrated earlier, when we do something that the Lord asks us not to do, it causes a gap, it causes some little bit of that relationship to go sour. Joshua realized things had gone sour after they'd lost. He recognized the Lord had not been with them, and if he was no longer going to be with them, the entire conquest would fail. And the Bible is very honest, isn't it? In this very personal prayer that we read next, we get an insight into the heart of Joshua. Joshua said, verse 7, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites... And the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and they'll wipe out our great name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? I can identify with Joshua. Joshua didn't feel he was an adequate leader. I can identify. Joshua felt underconfident. Yep. He knew God's plan was to take the promised land, but here he is panicking. And he started blaming God for the failure of A.E. In his humanness, he's also asking this very natural question. What are you doing, Lord? Surely this wasn't what you were thinking. I wonder, maybe for, for some of us here, we maybe we've come to a bump in the road in our own lives. Maybe we're wondering, Lord, what are you doing? Sometimes we just don't see that God doesn't promise us a smooth road. There will be bumps, and he is with us. The Israelites were thinking, we'll get destroyed. Then what will happen to your name? The name of the Lord was very important. It was a phrase often used in Scripture. It meant the Lord's reputation as the most powerful and holy one. In the hands of his chosen people, God's very honor was at stake in the eyes of the world. Friends, family, it still is. In the hands of us, his chosen people, we have the potential to increase God's honor or bring shame upon his name in the eyes of the world by our actions and our faithfulness. What do we do when our plans under God go wrong? Do we just shrug it off as one of life's little foibles? 
Do we blame ourselves? Do we blame God? Might we be tempted to wonder if he really knows what he's doing or whether he really loves us as we thought he did? The word of God ought to be our comfort. We know so well, don't we, the verse in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, that says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God always knows what he's doing. And we know he will always love us, even in the midst of suffering. For he said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Jeremiah 31.3 says, when the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. You know the thing about an everlasting love? It never runs out. Let's read on in Joshua. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go. Consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and done an outrageous thing in Israel. So we see that the failure of A.E. wasn't Joshua's fault. It wasn't that God didn't know what he was doing either. God was with the Israelites. He just wasn't in this battle. In our modern world, we seem to forget that God is a God of love, but also a God of justice. And in our highly individualistic culture of justice and punishment, we might wonder why God held the whole nation responsible for one man's sin. Was Achan some kind of a scapegoat for the nation? What was wrong with his sin that it brought judgment on the whole of Israel? We have to take the story back to the second half of chapter 6. You see, an integral part of the purpose of conquering Jericho was, it seems, to devote it to the Lord. And we saw earlier from the footnote that meant it was to be totally destroyed. The Israelites were commanded in chapter 6, verse 18, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away, Israel, from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. 
So, this concept of total destruction, this is one that modern Christians find really controversial, isn't it? Myself included. I'm going to be really honest and confess to you, I don't understand how a God of love and compassion can order the deaths of several thousand people, wiping out his city, raising it to the ground and destroying it. It seems like a massacre. Today, it will be called a war crime. So why, when God upholds the value of human life to be so sacred that he puts you shall not kill at the heart of his Ten Commandments, when he demands an accounting from Noah of his sons for the life of another human being, why does he then go on and command that everyone in Jericho be killed? It's a paradox, to say the least. You might be wondering, why am I even going here in a half-hour sermon? I clearly haven't got time to treat it uh, with the respect it deserves. Well, firstly, we have to read and accept the whole Bible as the Word of God. We can't just pick and choose what verses we like and we don't like. Secondly, this is an important question for us when it comes to apologetics, explaining our faith. Because many non-Christians will accuse God of being bloodthirsty, They might point out apparent contradictions such as this to suggest that God is unjust, inconsistent, and not all-loving. Nothing can be further from the truth. As I said, this requires a detailed study that I don't have time for this morning, but I will mention a number of things that I've discovered. Firstly, we'll know reading Scripture, especially the Old Testament. Whenever we read it, we need to read it in context. And studies show that ancient Near Eastern warfare of the time was typically even more barbaric than we see here. There were horrible practices that people would uh, bring in, torturing their prisoners and doing all sorts of horrible things, desecrating holy uh, graves and so on. Some commentators believe that Jericho was primarily a military garrison with its fortifications. So it may be that there were fewer women and children there than in other cities. Secondly, for the Israelites, in Deuteronomy, God set other more restrained rules for war against the other nations that were living in the promised land. So it seems Canaan, and especially Jericho, were a special case. But thirdly, they were also not an innocent people group. They had existed in the land for thousands of years, going back, to, going back to Abraham and before that, to the sons of Noah. Their sin and worship of false gods evolved over all that time into a culture that had become utterly pervaded by abhorrent religious practices. These were described in Deuteronomy 12 as detestable things the Lord hates. That even included bestiality, and child sacrifice. What kind of a God could let that stand? The overall reading is that on account of their wickedness, God resolved to drive out the nations from the land. It's my conviction that his destruction of them was a last resort. Yes, you shall not kill is in the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number six. But the answer to our dilemma is commandment number one. You shall have no other gods besides me. It was the idolatry 
that God wanted to destroy rather than so much the people. And yet, even in the Battle of Jericho, God still gave them then, gave them then a chance to repent because Rahab put her faith in the Lord and her household were spared. I believe if the rest of the city had repented or fled the land, God would have spared their lives too. As it is, we see throughout the Old Testament how idolatry would become for the Israelites such a recurrent problem. We've seen Baal worship, Asherah poles, foreign gods intermarrying and mixing in of foreign cultures with their detestable practices. So it was with good reason that the Lord commanded the Israelites to destroy all the idolatry of Jericho. If he allowed that to continue, Israel would be corrupted by it and it would spread through their lives like a deadly virus. Let's read on in the story. As the Lord directed, the tribes of Israel were whittled down to one man who confessed in verse 20 onwards, it's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place had been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Wow, sometimes the word of God really doesn't pull its punches, does it? You know, there was really some valuable treasure that Achan had stolen. I can see how he would have been tempted. Two and a half kilograms of silver, half a kilogram of gold. I don't, I don't know what it was like then, but at today's prices, even the gold would have been worth over 25,000 pounds. Of course, he hid it. And like so many of us, Achan thought, as, as, as we looked at with the children, that if he did it in secret, no one would find out. I wonder if in his mind he'd made the mistake of compartmentalizing his life. You know this idea that maybe there are compartments in our lives which are holy and others which don't need to be. We can be tempted to think that, like with Achan's tent, if everything looks respectable on the surface, we're okay. But Achan had sin hidden underneath. And what about us? Maybe other people can't see the compartments of our lives that might contain sin, but God can. So I ask, us, I ask myself first, is there any area of my life that I keep hidden because it's a place of secret sin? 
I continually need to ask myself, is there any part that is not consecrated to the Lord that is stopping me receiving his blessings and knowing Christ's victory? I often find that it's as I invite the Holy Spirit further and further to shine his light into my life that the Lord does show me more and more things that need to be devoted to him. In areas of sin, these do need to be completely destroyed. But, there's a but. Through faith in Jesus, you and I can know the Lord's forgiveness today. He says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. Like we've heard with Zacchaeus, Jesus does still want to be our friend, even after we've lied or stolen or cheated. Achan brought trouble upon the nation of Israel and finally trouble upon himself, his family and his whole household. Here's another footnote. The Valley of Achor means the Valley of Trouble. And it may be possible even that Achan's own name derives from Achor, meaning trouble. Very sadly, the way for Joshua to confront trouble was to devote him to the Lord. How about us? How are we to be devoted, to be consecrated? Well, I don't think that means with total destruction. The word consecrated means to be set apart as sacred, holy for God to use. I didn't really understand this uh, concept as a young Christian when, you know, there are areas of consecrated ground and uh, uh, land and holy objects. I thought, well, how can land be good or evil? It's not, it's just land. But that's a misunderstanding of the word holy. It means to be set apart for God's use. We treat it in a special way because of its purpose. Actually, that's what God calls us to do with our lives. It's a noble and dangerous prayer. There's one of Chris's points from last week that I feel is so important and so relevant. I'm actually going to repeat it. For anyone who wasn't with us, he told us uh, several times that before we can serve Jesus fruitfully, we must first submit to him absolutely. Achan didn't do that but God calls us to. It's interesting, isn't it, that we finished a teaching series that we called Devotement. It seems to have stretched over 2022. Maybe the Lord's saying something to us. This word means fully giving over ourselves to the Lord. And it's a sobering thought. That means that we are fully his. Thankfully, God doesn't ask us to be destroyed by fire, but we become a living sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I can't possibly preach the bad news to people this morning without the good news coming with it. So here it comes. The prophet, uh, the prophet Hosea would later reference the Valley of Achor in a promise to restore Israel. He says in Hosea 2 and verse 15, I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. What does that mean? Her refers to Israel. Israel's hope was to come through their Messiah. Their hope, our hope of redemption, comes through Jesus, God's anointed one. Because we have in the person of Jesus, God's own son, who, anointed, who atoned for our sin, he made amends for it 
to reconcile us, to make us one with the Lord God. If Achan was the Israelite scapegoat, Jesus is ours. He became our sacrifice, being completely destroyed to make us holy. God never has to take our lives because we've broken a commandment. He's already taken a life on our behalf. I wonder if there might be even one person here or watching who needs to hear this and accept the gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers. If you're prepared this morning to acknowledge that he paid for your sins too and recognize him as Lord, he will give you eternal life and reconcile you to God forever. Because his was the perfect sacrifice in the way that the Old Testament sacrifices were not. And now he calls us to follow metaphorically as living sacrifices. So we consecrate ourselves over to him. That means we give over to him every part of our lives, everything we are, everything we do, as we submit Holly to do his will. Friends, if you're going to give your life for something, there is no higher calling than giving it for God. He will teach you. He will guide you. He will make you achieve through him working through you things you'll never thought possible. It'll be the adventure of a lifetime. Yet God is not content with us doing right only some of the time, burying secret sin under the surface in the hope that no one will find out. He wants all of our lives So we devote to him, we totally destroy any thoughts, practices, habits, or even things we might use for those habits that get in the way between us and worshipping God. God might even be asking some of us to actively do that after we come home from church this morning. As we finish, I and others will be happy to pray for you and with you if you want to make that kind of commitment to God again or even for the first time. So as the musicians come back up, thank you to join us. I wonder if we might, each of us, take a moment to reflect on what trappings of idolatry we might have in our own lives. Things that might take God's rightful place in our hearts. And I know that's going to look different for each one of us. Maybe it might be how long we spend scrolling through social media rather than reading through the Bible. Shall we pray? Father God, 